Welcome to the Heroic Minds Podcast, where we uncover the heroic stories of individuals battling through adversity and rising to the top of professional sport, business, and life. Uncovering the characteristics, the secrets, the tactics to become the hero of your own story. Because it is adversity that maximizes human potential. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds Podcast. On today's episode, we have Brian Murphy, a police officer from Wisconsin. In August of 2012, Brian was answering to something he didn't know he was about to get into. There was an individual that approached a Sikh temple aiming to complete an act of terror and managed to do so in killing six innocent people and injuring many more. Now, Brian showed up to this call and within a minute and 15 seconds of a gunfight, Brian was shot 15 times. And I'm really going to leave it at that because you're going to hear the full story in this episode. But the coolest part of how Brian and I have this conversation is that he'll share a message or a concept or an idea, but then he'll tie it into the story from that day or he'll tie it into a story from his life. The messages in this episode are really endless from leadership to rationalization to staying calm amidst a gunfight where you realize you just got shot in the face. Uh, It's amazing that he kept fighting while he realized how many times he was getting shot. He even talks about the negative power of pity and really puts that in such a good way. It's an incredible call to action to really stop feeling sorry for yourself. He also talks about leadership and how you should act in a sense of how are you making everyone else feel? When people turn to you as the leader, how are you acting? And Brian goes in to talk about that while he was in the cop car bleeding and everyone else was going crazy. He was trying to stay calm because in that moment, he still knew he was a leader. It's yeah, it's crazy. I'm sure you're thinking that this episode is incredible. The most exciting part of this episode, and it's in the very end, is that I just straight up ask Brian, what is a hero? And he shares what he believes. And he also backs it up with a story from someone in the temple that day that was a hero. It wasn't just him that day that was a hero. There was someone else, and and he shares that story with us. So before we get going, remember to check out truelocal.ca. High quality meat, individually packaged, shipped right to your doorstep. I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you're going to give them a try, you have to order the turkey bacon. It's out of this world. And you can use my discount code if you want to give them a shot. It's HEROICMINDS25, all capital letters, to get $25 off a regular size box and $10 off a personal size box. You go on the website, you pick out exactly what you want, cancel it when you want, no extra fees, or just don't have them deliver as often. You pick the interval so it can come every 20 days, every 30 days, every 28 days, totally up to you. Check them out at trulocal.ca, truelocal.ca. Alrighty, here we go. I did a, uh, I did a, a they, we call it 1X, but it's a TEDx talk. Yep. At the Shorelands on, uh, and I know we're venturing, like where we're, all over the place, but yeah, you'll get it because even to get to the level of being even projected to be in the NHL, you had to have won a bunch of awards and been the best player in various leagues and whatnot. So besides the fact that once that's over, there's there's a thing, uh, you have to deal with that, but there's also a thing, and, and I did a TEDx on it, on, on the dark side of being a hero. As, as people throw accolades at you, they they promote you to this this entity that one you never aspired to be, 
Uh, you just wanted to do your job. And and two is it, it's such a uh, tenuous position because it goes on to the next. There's always, we never stay in the moment. We always look quickly look at the next episode, the next person and whatnot. And what I found in, in my, my job now is that's a, that's a hard thing for guys to get over is one accepting that people want to be almost a part of you because it makes them feel better about themselves. And then the second part is, what do you do when that's over? When no one recognizes you anymore, when your name isn't, you know, uh, easily recognizable, it's a difficult position to be in. And that's one of the things I do with the, you know, one of the jobs I do is uh, just talking to a very select group of officers who are either shot, stabbed, car accident, and, and help them through that. Because uh, as you well know, everybody loves the winner. And when you're not winning or when you're not even in the game, it's it's a hard position to be in. Totally. It's even worse today, I think, because of social media where you can build up this value now beyond already entering a room as a professional hockey player here in North America, at least. You, you have this automatic value and people want pictures with you, et cetera. And like you said, the moment that changes and then... Now with the social media side of things too, the moment you don't have value on social media, it's it's like now what? And you already are telling yourself you're not good at anything else. So what? Where? How do you dig for that value? How do you get over that hump? And it's it's interesting. And did you did you venture through that situation, or are you going through that in in regards to the hero side of things? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I it's it's an odd situation. I mean, I grew up in I grew up in Brooklyn. My, my mom worked in a bank. My, my dad was a, a sanitation worker. And there was a level, of, uh, a level of expectation that you worked hard, you tried hard, and, but you were only going to attain a very certain level. And that was going to be that. And you, you just, you know, you shot for being happy. Uh, and then all of a sudden, this came about, and it went from zero to a thousand quickly. And, and and I'm I'm still fortunate because I still go out like you. I go out and I speak, and and I, I have a message, but it's not the same. And I, I can remember after that the shooting and my wife and I being home. This is like I'm still going through rehab and such. And I can remember looking at her and I said, "What am I gonna do now?" And and with people calling and, hey, we want you to come speak. We want you to do this. And that was never my life for almost 50 years. That wasn't my life. And now all of a sudden it, it was here. And I remember talking to uh, my old my old chief of police and we sat down. And I'm like, we just having coffee. And I said, you know what I want, Tom? I just want August 4th which was the day before the shooting. I said, that's all I want. I don't want medals. I don't want plaques. I don't want anybody to know me. I just want August 4th and I want my life back. And and he just looked at me and he said, suck it up because this is the way it is. You can't look back and say, that's what I want. You have to look forward and say, what am I going to go and what am I going to do with what's been dealt to me? And, and it took a while. It, honestly, it took about a year to figure it out and go, all right, I think 
maybe this is why I'm here. Maybe this is the better message uh, to try and deliver uh, than sit there and go, why me? And, and it's very easy to sit there. I remember talking to my daughter years and years ago, and I said, pity is one of the warmest, most comfortable blankets you can wrap yourself in. <laughs> Self-pity is, it's comfortable. You can make it as fluffy or as whatever warm as you want it to be, but it never really helps you. It doesn't change the weather. It doesn't change anything. It just makes you stagnant and comfortable in that stagnation, which eventually leads to bad things. So that's, I, I think that was probably for me, it was taking it and it was that first step that first presentation that people accepted it well. And, you know, I remember talking to uh, my boss from Armour Express who had me go and speak. And he said, you know, you're a natural at this. And I said, it's just the story. I'm just, I'm not making things up. I'm not pulling things from anyone else. I'm just telling you what happened and, and what happened to me growing up. So it's it to me, it's very easy to... Mm -hmm. to, to to give that information out because I didn't need to research it. I didn't need to, you know what I mean? Clean. How can I focus this this way or that? It's it is what it is, you know. Well, and how do you or what is the biggest message? I guess when you speak, and maybe like you said, the message is different. It changes potentially when you are tying your story into a message. And I mean, I'm already writing things down of, of what you're sharing as it is. But when you speak, I guess, what is the the biggest message or what is it that you try to get across when you do speak at, say, a TEDx or now with the new job when you're presenting and whatnot? What is that main take-home message you want people to relate to your story? There's, there's a couple of things. One is you have to know you. I, I just simply say you have to know your reason. And, and that is you have to know your reason for why you're doing what you're doing. And, 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 you know, if you think of it from a law enforcement slash military perspective, what is it that's going to get you home at the end of the night? What is it that's going to make you do the best job possible? What's going to stop you from being complacent? And all those things wrap up into what's your reason? And, and for me, uh, I, I know it's my, my wife and my family. So when, and, and you know, if, if you want, we can th discuss the actual shooting because in the middle of the shooting, right in the middle of it, this epiphany comes and I see my wife Ann's face and boom, it's on. My thought was, I, I'm getting back to my squad. I'm gonna, it's, but without that reason, I think we all flounder. And it's all, it's all happened to us in our lifetimes that you forget the reason it gets opaque, it gets, it changes. Uh, but that's, that's one is you have to know your reason and, and stick to it. Uh, the other one I think more importantly is every, every day is a gladiatorial event. And, and what I mean by that is there has to be, you have, you have to get out of your comfort zone every day. You have to make it one, at least one thing that is a little bit of a struggle, uh, whether it's, you know, I, don't, I don't care, uh, take 10 seconds off your mile run, whether it's uh, 
not yelling at your kid because they won't pick up their clothes off the floor and, and not getting upset at it. Uh, there's there's a thousand upon thousand things, but that's what you have to do. And then to and this again, Ben, this is just me. Mm-hmm. This is just my opinion is I learn more in learning what not to do than I learn what to do. I watched people around me fail and flounder and and go directionless, and I thought that that's not going to be me. Uh, I was always a, a super small kid uh, growing up, but my my thought is I will always make it that I'm the hardest guy to tackle. I'm the, the hardest guy to catch. And and it was always in my head that I'm going to push a little bit more. And and the funny thing is all those little, those little daily uh whatever you want to call them, those little daily wins in your your own mental event, that's what builds resiliency. You know, I'm sure for yourself when you were seven years old and it was, I am not doing another bucket of pucks doing wrist shots, <laughs> but you do. You do one more and, and you know what? When it comes around that it's time that you're tasked heavily, you already have that inbuilt because you, you pushed yourself. And and as much as I, I've been with people who are great coaches and, and they're more to me, they were always more from a mental side, how to overcome obstacles than, you know, being pushed physically. Does that make sense? Totally. Totally. I, I couldn't agree more. And there's there I mean you can go to the science side of the attachment of the body to the brain and the mind and the mindset and and what people are able to do, but I, I could not agree more. I think that's that's phenomenal. I as we as we talk, I, I'm realizing we're actually going backwards through what I initially thought we were going to do. My my last question was about the hero, and I think we'll end up coming back to it again, but we're kind of going in reverse order, and this is fantastic. Being able to see the video and I'll, a video from the the cop car and, and not really knowing exactly what's going on, but you can tell, you can piece it together from what you see and seeing the gunshots. And when you arrive at a scene like that, what is the first thing maybe what is the first thing you did, but what is the first thing you think you have to do? What is the first goal uh, when you arrive? Okay, so if you if you look at that video, when you that, before I'm getting there, one of my last uh, radio messages was, uh, is the shooter still on scene or was he leaving? Because the way the, the temple set up is, there's a main thoroughfare, uh, a state highway right outside. But to get into the parking lot, it's about, I don't know, eighth of a mile to get in, but there's a rise. So when you drive in, you're just seeing roadway until you hit the apex of the hill, and then you can overlook everything. And and my initial concern was, uh, was this a fight in the parking lot? Because that's the way the call initially came in, was that it was a fight, then it was possible shots. Uh, and then there was someone shooting, but because of where it is and because it's so much off the beaten path, I wasn't thinking active shooter just because you don't deal with active shooters a tremendous amount. Uh, that would be the second one in my career, which is a lot for a small city uh, at, at any rate. But that was my first thing is, was this a fight? Uh, two people went at it. One guy shot another guy. And I didn't want to drive in while he's driving out 
and now you're at a loss. You don't normally drive a squad car with your gun in one hand, the hand on a steering wheel, and trying to talk on a microphone. You just don't. So that was my initial. Uh, and then once I got there, uh, when I came to the top of the hill, I uh, looked over the parking lot and straight ahead of me, it looked like there was one person down. So that was my initial thought was, let me, let me go take care of this person. At, at that exact moment, there was no shooting. Uh, there was no sounds of shots. There was nobody else in the parking lot except myself. And what I thought initially was one person down, but it was actually two. So they were brothers, they were priests uh, from India, and they had been in the parking lot when the shooter got there. He had seen them, uh, and there was a 10-year-old and a six-year-old playing tag outside, and they watched the shooter come up and kill both those men. So they ran inside the building and and said, this guy outside shooting, and then he went in. Uh, so when I got there, saw the guy down, uh, and and when I say I saw one, the the one brother must have tried to protect the other brother and was laying on top of them, and he, they they were wearing ceremonial robes, uh, but all I could see was one head and one large body, uh, but the one brother was actually laying on top of the other one like he was protecting him. Wow. So at at that moment, that that was my first train of thought was. Okay, I call for an ambulance. Uh, again, I'm scanning, looking for anyone. Uh, and at, at, at that particular second, nobody was there. And that changed in two at, seconds. At that moment, were you, it sounds like from the articles and the video, it seems like you were the only officer at, for most of this encounter? Um. It, it probably winds up dividing about half and half. I uh, I dealt with them for it, in the end they wound up being a minute and fifty one seconds from our initial shot till uh, the arriving officer came. Now he was there, uh, and they called. Uh, he called me on the radio, but unfortunately I was already shot, so I couldn't answer him. Um. And, and then he wound up, uh, he shot and hit the, the shooter, and the shooter went down and killed himself. Now, I, I have to say this because I, I, I think this is of utmost importance. Uh, I'm a good shot, okay? I, I was in the Marines for five years, always qualified expert. I did SWAT for almost 18 years. We qualified twice a month with SWAT and once for patrol. So I shot a great deal. Now, I, I happened to be at the temple yesterday. Uh, the governor of Wisconsin came and uh, he made April in Wisconsin uh, seek awareness, uh, uh, awareness month. So I was at the temple and I had the hardest time with this piece of it. I drive up, and my, it was my wife and I, so I, I, I told Anne, my wife, I said, I'm going to pull in right where I pulled in. So I stopped my car and parked right where I did, with where you see my squad. 
and we got out of the car and I and I explained it to her and I'll explain it to you. It is the hardest thing for me to get over. Having having been a good shot and everything else, when I get there and I, I call send an you know, send an ambulance, blah blah blah, all of a sudden he comes out the front. Now the distance from me to him is about forty yards. And he turns so he's uh, perpendicular to me and is running away from me. And at one point, I, I have my gun out at this point. I'm yelling for him, uh, you know, police stop. And the reason why I didn't shoot him is I didn't see a gun. There was no exact match. It was just a guy leaving the temple at this point. So I still draw down on him. And that gun comes sideways and he winds up running while shooting one hand basically behind his back. And that first shot hits me right in the face. And and I'll be honest with you, you couldn't make that shot. Ben, I will give you $1 million <laughs> to take that shot and hit that target. And, and I've talked to guys who are professional shooters. It's an impossible shot. It, it just is. For you to even run forward and shoot, Think about it. With one arm, what happens with weight in your hand? The, it goes up and down. And I mean, it's it's insanely difficult, let alone just throw the shot behind you. So and and the reason why you know, I, I definitely do this in my, my, my talks is you can be the best you can be. It doesn't mean bad shit's not going to happen to you. It, it doesn't. Sometimes you don't have to be good. You just got to be lucky. And he was lucky. And, and when I get there, every time I go to the temple, I look at that distance and I think of that shot and I just think, how did that happen? How? And, and, and my wife, God bless her, she's, the, she's the, the, the smart one in the family. She just looks at me and she said, yeah, but if the shot went two inches higher, you'd have been dead. Mm-hmm. And she's absolutely right because... It would have hit me probably right under the nose, which is, if you're a sniper, that's where you're going to hit, is the spot right under the nose that's going to kill you. So for, for me, that, that initial shot, when I look back on it, I just, I look at that and I'm like, how the hell did that happen like that, you know? Wow. When you experience that, when you... And I don't know if you had ever been shot before that, but when you realize I was just shot in the face, and I, I mean, there's the pain, there's, I would, from my point of view, there'd be some fear. How is it that at that moment you then, you then continue to work? Like, how is it that you continue to perform? What was, what was that situation like in your mind? Was it, I, like, how did you not think I can't, I can't keep working? I actually, you know, I, I, and I talk about this. So, you know, when I grew up in Brooklyn, uh, I was 60s and 70s, and it was a, a probably lower middle income neighborhood, and we just fought a lot. I mean, everybody fought. You fought, you know, twice a day some days. Uh, but, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, you threw a couple of punches, you wrestled to the ground, and then you got up, and like, that was it, you were over. So, I was used to getting hit because I, I told you I was the smallest guy and shockingly I was a wise ass. So <laughs> it, 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 it happened a lot. But that, that initial shot to the face actually felt like a punch. 
that that's it. It just felt like a good punch. Now, in front of me is uh, a line of cars. So I went behind the cars to take cover and, and look for them. And it was just in that second from standing to going to behind the engine that I lost sight of them. Then you know, I checked myself real quick and I actually felt fine. Now, that bullet had gone down my throat, uh, ripped up my esophagus and my voice box. It hit my spine and it ricocheted and it's right behind my carotid artery. It's about three millimeters by my carotid artery and it's and it's still there. I, I, again, though, I, I didn't feel bad. And in my head, I checked myself and I saw I was bleeding. But I didn't like try talking at that point. I'm, I'm in the middle of a gunfight. And that was my only thought is, I'm in a gunfight, right? You know, let's get it on. And then it did. It, it, it's that I guess I never looked at it like, oh, I should leave. My answer, my, my thought process was, this is what I've trained my whole life to do. Uh, is worst case scenario, and this is the ultimate worst case scenario. And no, I hadn't ever been shot before, uh, and I never shot at anybody before. But I, we, our department, fortunately, was very well trained. We, uh, we did a lot of scenario-based training. So, from a, a mindset, you're you have a better, uh, a better mindset because you've encountered at least similarities before. So, so at that point. I, I'm looking for him, and I don't see him. So if you're watching the video, you can see, and he stops running, actually doubles back. So when I, it was 10 seconds later, I'm still looking for him, I can't see him, he's still shooting. And there's a thing called, yeah, you should get off the X, which just simply means in a gunfight, you don't want to stay in one spot too long because it's easy to zero in on you. So I, I step out from behind the car, bring my, both my hands up with my gun, and unbeknownst to me, I actually uh, came back and was about 10 feet to my left behind me. And the next shot uh, hits me in, and, and, and it takes off half my thumb, and it shoots the gun out of my hand. And I, I don't know if you've ever experienced this as, as, uh, as an elite-level athlete, but I imagine you have, you're, you're in a, a high stress thing, championship game that you're on a breakaway that, you know, you, there's nobody there. Does the, the things ever slow down for you that you're like, this is like slow motion almost. Is, is that what you ever have that? Yeah, and I don't know if it would be the same way that you are speaking about in your situation, but yes, I mean, when there's, it's almost as if you know exactly what needs to be done, and right now in that moment, all you have to do is execute, and it seems as if time slows down, because there's really nothing else other than you know what you need to do, there's no one around, and it, yeah, I, I could relate to that part of it. So, that, that, and and I've, I've, I haven't studied it extensively, but... Part of that reasoning is your brain is functioning so quickly that it makes things seem slower than it is. So when that bullet hits my hand and the, 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 my gun goes flying and my thumb just explodes, 
and I'm looking at my thumb, and I can see the bone at the end of my thumb. And on my mother's grave, I look at my hand, and I, in my head, all I could think of is, oh, shit, that's going to leave a mark. And it's, I know it sounds like I'm making it up, but it's not because everything is slow at this moment. And he's, he doesn't obviously feel these things. So he's just continuing to shoot. So he hit me in the arm, he hit me in the leg after this. And without going into a lot of uh, options uh, and what would you do type thing, there's a car there. I know my partner's there. Uh, Either he's there at the moment or he's coming. Uh, so I, I take cover under the car. And this is where that that moment of silence comes in. So I'm under the car. He walks by and he's shooting at me under the car. I had, I had turned and stuck my vest out uh, to give him. My only target would have been my bullet-resistant vest. So he hits me a couple of times in the vest. And then he goes on the other side and... Uh, there's no noise at that moment. It's quiet. And I close my eyes and that's where I told you I see Anne. And immediately my reason is I have to get back to the car, my squad. I'm going to either rip the long gun out of there, which by the way, Murphy's Law being in effect, it's the only day in a year and a half that the locking mechanism for my rifle breaks is that day. And, and and to add insult to injury, so we're clear on this, there's, there is a uh, divine providence because that's my off day. I shouldn't even been at work. Uh, I had traded with a sergeant. His son was graduating ROTC and he needed the day off. And my, my thought was, well, I'm supposed to go on my honeymoon in uh, 10 days. So we'll just switch days. I'll work for him. He'll work when I'm on my honeymoon. This is going to be great. So those two things also come into effect. Oh, my and, gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's a, you know, when you look and you think this was meant to be and it was meant to be for me, then it, it actually makes it easier to swallow, I think, uh, when you add it all together. Anyway, I, I think in my head this is, this is what's going to – I have to get back to the car. So if I can either rip the rifle out or I'm just going to run him over. But it's going to be good for me and bad for him. And to be honest with you, I don't know where he is at this moment. There's no noise. There's no nothing. My initial thought is he's running to where I initially saw him come out. So he came out of the building and ran to his left. So I'm figuring he's got a car there. He's got a partner, blah, blah, blah. Well, when I roll out from under the car, that that pause, that no noise, was because he had run out of ammo, and now he just reloads. So when I roll out from under the car, I'm basically looking at him like I'm looking at you on Skype now. We're just about eight feet apart, and then he just starts shooting, and it's boom, 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 boom. Uh, around where my uh, where this incident took place, there's 26 shell casings. So that's that's how many times he shot at me. And, you know, I, I look at this and I think, why didn't he? And my, and my wife brought this up and she said, well, I had to see you were like pushing yourself back, that you didn't have anything in your hands that could hurt him. Why didn't he just walk 
right on top of you and put the gun to your head and kill you. And and I said, you know what? I don't know. And he's dead, so we don't. We'll never know. But I said, I think this is the answer. Active shooters all over the place. They they look for one thing. They look to promote chaos. Uh, it's a power issue. Uh, very rarely does anybody target. You know, hey, let me go hit Navy SEAL headquarters, right? You know, we just had this happen uh, at the synagogue in California, uh, synagogue in Pittsburgh. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean? These are these are not places you expect these things to happen. So when he goes in, he is getting what he wants. It's what he always envisioned. It's what he always planned for, was people running, screaming, and running away from him. But to be honest with you, when I was looking at him, all I could think of is, can I wanted him to get close enough where I could hook his heel and drag him to the ground with me. Well, what I learned is I got really short arms. So being a boxer was never in the cards for me. <laughs> but you also know being in hockey and just in life, sometimes you have to fight. So you have to figure out if I can't box you, what's my what should I do? And the answer is I have to go to the ground. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel comfortable fighting there. And, and that was my only thing. And to be honest with you, there was a, a moment in all of this where in my head, I just was trying to stay laser, laser focused, get to the car, get to the car, get to the car. But then it changes in the middle and it just becomes anger. And I'm looking at him and I'm just so pissed. And I'm like, when are you going to be done shooting me? Do you know what I mean? He's just standing there shooting, and shooting, and shooting. I just expect him at some point to just say the hell with it and go wherever he was going, but he doesn't. So I roll over and because it's faster for me anyway, crawling forward, then going back, you know, backward crab walk. And and he shoots me some more. And then the, the final bullet comes and that skims off the back of uh, the top of my vest. And that one goes into the back of my skull. And, and that one actually laid me flat. Uh, and then at, at that moment, so while that's going on, my partner arrived. So this is a condensed uh, version. So he's he had already been there for 40 seconds, unbeknownst to me. Uh, and then he gets the attention of the shooter, the shooter and him engage. And like I said, Sam uh, shoots him, puts him down, and then, then he kills himself. Uh, and in the meantime, I was between the cars where, where they couldn't see me. So my thought is, I, I need to get out where they could see me. So I just crawled out uh, and then they were able to come and come and get me. You talk about it in such a rational way when you were, it sounds like when you were there, you either, you were also thinking rationally in that moment. And I know you touched on, on visioning your, your family and, and having that as a reason to, to keep pushing and, but what is it in your training maybe or in your life you're growing up that you were able to think rationally through that entire process, even while being shot and knowing you were being shot in the head too, is that you still had a rational thought. And I wondered what is it that you've trained or practiced that's kept you in that mindset or helped keep you in that mindset? It's, uh, um, it's the ability to remain calm. I, I will put that at the top of everyone's list is if you can remain calm, you can make good decisions. Then possibly, like in my case, 
you know, decisions that are, are life-saving. I, when, when this is over, and I, I don't know how to do this, my technology uh, stinks, but there's the video uh, of me in the back of my car. So they come and they, they pick me up, but that, uh, you know, I've been shot 15 times, and they put me in the back of the car, and if you watch the video, I, I can show it to you. The only one who's calm is me. Everybody else is yelling and screaming, and rightfully so. I'm not. I'm not taking anything away from anybody. This is not an everyday occurrence at any police department. So when you know, guys, I'm. I'm. I'm I work with all these guys for a minimum of 23 years. These are my friends. That we're a small agency, so I know them. They know me. And, and to look down and to see your, your friend shot to pieces is, I, I mean, you, you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it not, don't even go shot. Say you, you see a car accident and you get out and that's your, your good friend you've known for 20 years, you know, bleeding all over the place out of this car accident. Your heart rate, everything will be through the roof. But we had always practiced autogenic breathing, there's a lot of names for now, autogenic breathing, combat breathing, Navy SEAL breathing, box breathing, but we always practice that, and as most people will tell you, in day-to-day activities, I can be kind of a hothead, but when it's chaotic, that's when I can take it down and stay calm. It's almost almost better for me to be in chaos that that's that's my operating zone where uh, i can function where you know every day minor stuff kid stuff on the floor blah 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 that that like drives me nuts <laughs> but that was all from being in the military being uh training for you know 20 22 years at that point that this is your job is to remain calm and again at that moment, I'm the boss. I was a lieutenant, and I know from doing this for a long time, we have a team captain. Yeah, my last year, I was the captain, yeah. All right, so if something's going on, don't people look to you like where you're at is where I need to be. If if Ben is like super fired up and ready to go, that's where I need to be, right? right. Or if Ben's like super calm, that's where I need to be. And and I knew this, that my my demeanor was going to set the tone for everybody else. So that was in my head as well as I have to remain calm, lower my blood pressure, keep my respirations uh, to, a, to a normal function, keep everybody down to a, a working level so everybody here makes good decisions. And But that was... You know, it, it's easier said than done, and it was a lot, a lot of practice. Uh, we, like I said, we trained a lot, real life scenarios, a lot of ground fighting. Where, in the middle of it, you, I, you know, I, I can remember saying, "All right, hold on, stop for a second, just to think my way through it, and then, all right, let's do it again, faster, a little bit faster." But everything requires that baby step action. So then when things become real life, it's you, you fall into, um, I, I guess I, I've heard it this way. You can't go to the toolbox to get a tool that you never use. 
you're, you're going to pick a tool that you use every day. Then, and, and that's, that's the, to me, that's the philosophy that, you know, I, I, you asked in the very beginning, what do you tell guys? Well, you have to know your reason. The other one is you have to know yourself. You have to know your limitations. You have to know your strengths, work on both. And, and I've earned that, you know, you know, maintain your strengths, not bullshit. You make your strength off the charts. Why, why do you, where do we get to go? Well, I squat a lot of weight, so I'm not going to squat anymore. Why? That That's foolish. Keep your squat, make your squat even greater, but work on the things that aren't, you know, are not your strong suit or you don't like, you know, but you have to do that. So, and your equipment. And that's uh, part of my issue with the, with the gun lock was uh, for, I didn't know that there was a way to unlock that lock without using the electronics. And that's on me because as, as somebody who would need that in the most gravest of, gravest of situations, I didn't. And I don't blame anybody else. I blame myself. Uh, so th- then under all of that, those three things, know yourself, know your reason, know your equipment, is, is simply it's your life. Own it. Don't you know, I, you know when I talk to you guys? Don't don't tell me. But the 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 department won't let me go to the range, so I'm not a good shot. No, no, no. It's your life. Spend twenty bucks, go get a box of rounds, and go to the range. If you're not a good ground fighter, find somebody who is. Have them show you. Go to a class. Sometimes you have to go on your own. If this is your job. I, I, I don't know any any pro athlete who stops at the end of the year. Well, season's over. I'm not going to do a damn thing till minicamp. You you can't. It, it, your skills, and especially as you age, you have to compensate, you know, and, and learn. Okay, well, I'm now, you know, I'm 57. I can't sprint like I could when I was in the Marines. So... That doesn't mean you you can't. Doesn't mean you stop running. It just means you learn to compensate. I need to stay at this level because I can still function. And and no, I'm not an Olympic sprinter, but I'm going to get where I need to go. Does that does that make sense? Before I, I sum things up with a question, I I have one more little topic I'd like to dive into again, which we touched on in the beginning. Is what is your approach to? you know, a different race, a different culture, a different religion that you ultimately risked your life for. And, and where is that taking you today? And what is your approach to that entire discussion that is unfortunately often in the media today? Hey, you know, did, did you by any chance happen to see the, the video that just came out on the University of North Carolina, Charlotte shooting? No, I did not. All right. That, that just happened yesterday. I, uh, and if you watch, there's there's somebody uh, is walking out of the building, uh, obviously one of the students who has a phone. And here's the bottom line, and it's that I'm no different than any any other 99% of law enforcement. Every other cop's running in. They're not looking to say, well, what religion are they inside? What dorm is this? What? Nobody cares. When when I I got sent to that call, my thought was, huh. Sikh religion. Well, you know what? I don't know that much about them, so I'm going to take my time. That's that's such nonsense, and it's I, I hate to say it. It is media made and media driven. 
the the majority and and I'm not saying this even from a law enforcement perspective the majority of people will always go out of their way to help somebody in trouble but we don't focus on that and I think that's that's part of the detriment to society now having said that there are people in in law enforcement who do not belong there it's it's a fact but there are people who are accountants who couldn't who shouldn't be accountants it's it wouldn't it's it's a job of 600,000 people and you can't say everyone needs perfection because it just can't happen but you need to and then the you know I've, I've worked for a lot of different things and one is the the uh, it's called the Valor for Blue program, and it's it's put on by uh, Bureau of Justice Assistance, the feds. That that if you look now, you'll and and I hear this wherever I go. People say, "Oh, people hate cops." No, it isn't. That's absolutely not true. It's the it's the program that you're being told is on the air. But most people who are living their lives and doing their jobs will tell you, "No, that." I, I love it. I understand they're doing a job. Nobody wants to. Here's the difference. And we always crack each other, firemen and, and police, right? They, they, they don't care where you go. It's always the same. Everybody loves to see the firemen because they're going to put the, you know, the houses on fire. They're going to help you. Nobody wants to see the cop because you're either in trouble because you did something wrong or something is bad and we have to go and do it. So... I, I look at that and I know there's so much there's so much emphasis put on differences on whether it be a religious or cultural or or ethnicity. But I, you know I, and I, I still stick to this. If you took 50 people from 50 different religions, sexual you know orientation, I don't care what it is, 50 different backgrounds, put them behind curtains and mask their voice. And you ask the same specific set of questions. What is that? What is important to you? What's important to you on a day-to-day basis? Where do you see things? Everybody says the same. Nothing changes. And, and, but then if you lifted the curtains and you saw, you know, one guy was from, uh, I don't know, Chad, and one guy was from Canada, and one guy was from Japan, and they were wearing the different religious garbs. Immediately, you go back to the stereotype that we grew up with, and you create a feast. So that is the crux of it, is you have to stop that early on and, and make being accepting part of your life. No, no side jokes, and I see it all the time. I've seen it at at events for for greater good things, but people still are on the side having many conversations about, you know, whether someone has too many earrings or too many tattoos or blah blah blah. My answer is who gives a shit? It's people are people and we all want the same things. Stop buying the hype into and, and I know especially in the US you hear so much on, this is Trump's fault, this is Trump's fault. Please, if you honestly believe that these feelings didn't exist prior to him taking office, you're a fool. You're a fool. Now, do people look at this, the way he, his, the way he portrays things and use it 
as an excuse to further their their own belief? Probably. But don't say he caused that. He didn't cause anything. You grew up with it. You developed it. You worked on it all by yourself or with your parent or your peer group. But don't don't act like one person in charge changed your whole view of how you view another religion, ethnicity, or whatever. That's, I, I don't buy that. And I, I know I went off the rails there, but it's it's the truth of the matter. I mean, no matter where you go, and, and that's why I always put those slides up uh, of the Sikh religion. 99% of the men in the United States and, and Canada who wear a turban and a beard are not Muslim, they're Sikh. And, and when you say that, you, you can see the looks and watch people look at each other like, what? And say, yeah. And, and, and my answer is, so do you like them now? And, and then you're like, well, and then you go, well, they believe the same as you. They, they believe in hard work. They believe in serving each other. Serve and protect is, is the motto of the sacred religion. Are you okay with them now? And if you go, well, yeah, then you go, well, you're a fool because they were, they didn't change. You changed, right? Because that, that's what it comes down to is you have to educate yourself and, and just be a little bit open. And don't don't get me wrong. My, my growing up was we had a name for everybody who wasn't Irish. Okay? That's, that's just the way it was. My dad could rattle off a dictionary's full of slang names that you gave to everybody. But that was him. And and like I said, going all the way back, you learn things I learned what not to do. And and I, I was fortunate. One of the places I got to work was I worked at the United Nations in New York. So I I knew guys from all over the globe. And at the end of the day, it's all the same. I'm worried about my kids. I got to pay my mortgage. We all want the same things. We basically want the same. Don't don't make it bigger than it needs to be. In conclusion, I've got one final question to ask, and that's what is a hero to you? <laughs> it's, it's funny because in my slides, uh, I put there's a what happens is the kid, the shooter goes into a back room. And I ask, I, I usually pick three people out of the audience. Give me your definition of a warrior. Uh, somebody who doesn't stop fighting. Somebody who will keep going. And I say, all right, in your head, how do you see a hero? How do, how do you visualize your hero? I go, you know, is it that 38-year-old, 300-pound guy eating Doritos off his belly in his mom's basement? Or is it the buff, you know, gladiator, you know, gladiator? Uh, and everybody says the same. And I go, and I'm going to show you what happens. And in this, the the man who runs the temple, his name is Mr. Kalika, and he's 65 years old, no military, no law enforcement experience. Killer comes in, shoots him. First, Mr. Kalika pleads with them, please, you don't need to do this. Put the knife down, put the gun down, let's talk. There's no need, so he tries to talk him down. He gets shot, killer comes on top of him. Mr. Kalika takes out uh, a small ceremonial knife called the Kirpan, and he starts stabbing him in the leg. He gets shot again, and the knife goes away. And the last thing Mr. Kalika does is he takes his hands, 
and he wraps him so hard into the, the shooter's pant leg that when the killer rips his leg away, he actually takes Mr. Kalika's fingernails with him. Now, what's unbeknownst to the killer is in this room, there's a bathroom, and Mr. Kalika had put a mother, a father, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old, hid them in the bathroom. So not only is he protecting those four people, he's trying to protect the entire temple. So I show a picture of him, and I said, would you now say that man is a hero? So being a hero is not about what you look like. It's about where your heart is. And then... To me, a hero is doing the right thing for the right reason with all your heart and all your mind. That's what a hero is. It doesn't have to be anything to a life and death thing. The the person who sees something wrong going on and and fixes it with, with no expectation. And I think that's the big caveat here, Ben, is with no expectation of acknowledgement or medals or plaques or anything else, but just doing it to for the right reason and just to be good, that's a hero. To me, that's a plain and simple hero. And I always look at Mr. Kalika and I think you are, without a doubt, if they could give, could have given you the Congressional Medal of Honor, they should have because... He he did everything he could to protect everybody. And here's the last thing I'm going to tell you. Probably not your last, but while that fight's taking place, we're already responding. Okay? So what happens then is after he kills Kalika, he goes into the kitchen. And this group of women and children run inside a pantry. And because that fight between Kalika and the killer took place, it gave me enough time to get there. So when the killer's walking up, they all run into this pantry with a sliding door. And they slide that door, and I'm sure you know, most sliding doors don't lock. It's a hollow core door. He could have shot right through that door. It's a tiny, tiny closet with all these women and children in there. And that's just when I arrive, he sees my squad and he leaves those people alone and he comes out, me and him go at it. It's a year after the fact. And I'm at, uh, they hold a memorial every year uh, in Oak Creek. And I'm at the memorial and this, this little tiny older woman comes up and she goes, oh, Lieutenant, you're my hero. And I don't like that word for me. I, I, I think on a grander scale, I said, nope, but it did a great job. And she said, no, 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 uh, Lieutenant, I was in the pantry, that, that little tiny room. And I said, oh, my God. I said, you know what? I, I never, I, I knew it happened, but I didn't know, uh, you know, who was there. And she goes, do you know how many of us were inside the pantry? And I said, no, I, no, ma'am, I don't. And she said, there was 15 of us. And I said, oh, my God. I said, I'm so happy you're all with us. And she looked at me and she said, you don't get it, do you? And I said, no. And she said, how many times did you get shot? And I said, 15. And she goes, that's right. And there was exactly 15 of us in that pantry. Wow. Yeah. See, that, that, that exactly. I got goosebumps. I, yeah. I, and, and I realized at that moment... There were times in your life, and uh, Churchill said this, and I'm just going to paraphrase it. 
there, there's going to be a time in your life when you're you're literally tapped on the shoulder and asked to do something that was meant for you. And what a tragedy if you're not ready. And and I thought after the fact, my whole life from the you know Brooklyn to to the UN to the Marines to my department. All of that culminated in that moment when I got tapped because if I don't show when I do, those 15 people are going to die. And if it wasn't for the, the hero, Mr. Kalika, doing what he did, just pause them him enough to allow me to get there, it doesn't work. So there's as, as much as we love to think there is no divine intervention, I, I can argue there is sometimes. That brings us to the end of another Heroic Minds podcast. I encourage emails. I encourage constructive criticisms. I encourage recommendations. My email is always in the description of these episodes. I'm a sponge. I want to learn any ideas, concepts. Please share them with me. Let's keep the conversation going. I'm Ben Finelli. This is the Heroic Minds podcast. We'll talk again soon.